not a crook. I earned everything I got. Military industrial contract. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time-stealing. Hello. Oh, who's going? Yes. Am I going? Does it matter, Hans? I don't know, Hank. Does it matter? We got to get this straight. Which one of us is which? Well, somebody oh, was contending oh. that they never heard you two speak at the same time. Well, oh, body da, what do you know? Somebody is a neophyte to the show. He hasn't engaged in the amount of crosstalk. Right. You got to go back to like the very early episodes uh, where everyone was screaming at each other. You know, that's the real lore, deep lore, and you'll you'll figure out who each of us are. Well, on that topic, th- there was were better than a, if, uh, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the ultimate like uh, near screaming match was Adam and Nick on the uh, the Kaczynski episode. That got pretty bad. Oh jeez, I don't want to relive <laughs> that. That was good. I I do miss my ability to deliver content uh, with a reasonably okay audio and internet setup. But that was something that happened a long time ago. In fact, I will add, I guess this is at this point, the intro to this episode of Myth of the 20th Century podcast. And welcome, everyone. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, next week, I suppose, will be I will be able to deliver some content that's relevant to the subject of 20th century history. Uh, the circumstances as to why now we are not doing that are probably unnecessary to get into but it involves schedules and internet and things like that so the fact is we're going to discuss now i don't know things of certain relevancy to some of us and maybe to some of you but regardless thanks for listening um how are you guys doing oh i'm good thanks for asking Uh, i just wanted to uh give a couple of uh housekeeping items uh regarding the topic of old archive shows there was a very nice listener who actually requested an old show that i had to do some digging to pull up because he wasn't able to find uh one of uh, another show uh but he compiled uh something to do with the left and right dialectic i couldn't find it uh which was an interesting show actually but we we've been kicked off our various platforms and there have been some uh migration issues on uh, my end and, and other people's ends. So we don't have a complete list, but he actually was able to compile a 193 episode because we actually have more episodes than what the current episode number shows, as it turns out, because we used to be on social matter and we re-indexed ourselves back to zero, basically, when we joined them. We had about 10 episodes before that, but he's uh, putting them up on, um, on BitTorrent. Uh, so probably in Pirate Bay you can find it. 
Uh, I don't know all the details, but he's he's going through that effort. And I, I said, go ahead, man. I, I I'm all for it. You know, um, without asking your guys's permission, but I don't, I don't really see it any different than having it on Internet Archive, well, which need, we already are. I don't really need permission to upload. I gotta check with my lawyers. Uh, yeah, right. That's the point. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if my uh, my lawyer is gonna be okay with this. Uh, mm-hmm. You know. Rabbi Shmuley. So all like all our him. royalty payments from uh, the studio are going to be cut off. Um, and speaking yeah, of all which, the royalty payments from NRX.org yeah. are going to be uh, cut off, I guess. I forgot to thank uh, some Bitcoin donations last week. We've had some several very generous ones. I just want to reiterate, anybody who wants a book or something, email, and we're happy to hook you up. Um, but yeah, thank you. Oh, actually, I, let me make a comment on to that. Uh, I noticed I was checking an email associated with uh, there, there does exist a Patreon. And I, I saw that there were some re- requests for the PDF copy of the book. Uh, I can go in and like parse out some of the more. I, I don't check that. That's an, an old email. Um, I have a lot of spam there. But uh, uh, Adam, why don't you say the most relevant email? to obtain the pdf at and i will at the very least i'll res- i'll look at the the person who i saw that i, I think i saw some others but the, the first one i saw i will uh, message directly but why don't you say specifically where they can find uh, a suitable email to obtain the pdf yeah yeah sorry anybody who wanted uh, a copy um it myth 20 c at tutanota.com m y t h t uh, 20c at tutanota.com. So myth 20c. So you guys been following the uh, the latest war in the Caucasus? I like the confusion uh, of like it's when you have kind of semi obsolete uh, like fighting styles mm-hmm. that hit just kind of one new thing it doesn't really tell you how the one new thing is actually going to hash out but it does say i mean it gives like a nice little sales demo i guess for the various uh, israeli aerospace companies kind of yeah, seems I mean, like you shouldn't be trucking across a uh, landscape in uh in apcs anymore yeah and the whole thing has been very uh very curious um i you know i looked into it uh, we never really have talked about uh the region as a whole the caucasus or uh a lot of the problems that have arisen after the end of the soviet union um you know to go into i guess some it's very, very opaque to most people yeah i mean, I mean to go into some 20th there, century content for... um you know there there's basically after the soviet union fell apart there were variety of actually small-scale wars that have gone mostly unnoticed to the average American. Um, obviously, the Yugoslav War might have been the most prominent in the minds of Americans. Uh, to some Americans, uh, maybe of Armenian extraction or certainly Russian extraction, they would maybe have heard about the... Uh, let me be clear. There are no Americans of Armenian extraction. That's not necessarily true. There are There are some good... Armenians in the United States. And uh, Kasparian, you got uh, System of a Down. Uh, who else? 
<laughs> I don't know, man. You, I'd you guys... be really impressed if we have any Armenian listeners. Uh, I guarantee. You know, I, I don't actually. For the record, I don't dislike. Yeah, we do. I, I actually. Uh, let me just say, I know for a fact we do. So you should take back that hateful comment. That's cool. I don't. I don't want to be too harsh to the Armenians. <laughs> I, I. I don't actually have. A They're problem. not going to donate. It's an. It's an easy them. joke to make. But, but so I mean, I think, uh, if we're going if we're going to pick sides, it's like hmm, yeah, we should pick the Turks. I don't blame. Look, I don't blame the, whatever Armenians may or may not be listening to this program. I don't blame them for Anna Kasparian. It's not. I don't. I don't hold them personally accountable for that woman. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, uh, a lot of Armenian. Well, I think that there is also a stark difference between the Armenians of the United States and the Armenians of Armenia. Uh, the Armenians of Armenia, uh, as far as I think most of us can tell, are actually not half bad. They seem like your average post-Soviet uh, state, fairly socially conservative, nominally Christian, nominally homogenous. Uh, certainly not. Sounds uh, like Tom Woods. Not not necessarily uh, uh, on the side of uh, the. <laughs> The New World Order, I would say, right now. Um, to give you guys some history, uh, so after the Soviet Union fell, there were a variety of small-scale civil wars or rebellions. Um, Yugoslavia was probably the most prominent, uh, or other than the Chechen Wars uh, and the wars in Dagestan and Najushtia uh, in the 90s, which were uh, kind of brought to a swift end by um, one Vladimir Putin. Uh, there were wars in uh, this region that kind of separates Armenia and Azerbaijan, which is sort of a uh, loosely defined state um, uh, called Nagorno-Karabakh. I think Armenians call it Artsakh or something to that effect. Effect. Um, there were uh, wars in Kyrgyzstan and in Tajikistan that you know resulted actually in Russian troops being engaged. Um, the you know the entire kind of post-Soviet world uh, very quickly collapsed, and uh, there were a lot of grudges that needed to be settled. Uh, the Soviets, for all their faults, really had been uh, preventing a lot of ethnic um, animosities from coming to the forefront, um, and certainly in places like the Fergana Valley in Central Asia, which is sort of this. Very, very uh, poorly defined and poorly uh, created sort of mix of a region that uh, is made up of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and uh, Kyrgyzstan, I believe. Uh, and it certainly has a variety of other uh, smaller ethnic groups therein. Uh, is one of the hot zones that everyone has believed could blow apart in any given moment. But the other one that everyone has always assumed ever since the war uh, for Nagorno-Karabakh in uh, in 94, I'm sorry, in 92, uh, when it began in 92, it ended in 1994, uh, everyone has always assumed that uh, that would be inevitable, that there would inevitably be another uh, another war for the region, especially as Azerbaijan grew due to uh, Western energy company investment, Turkish and European energy investment. Uh, you know, yeah. it's very much a NATO Too money. aligned state. There's there's a lot of money. It, it's very much like Saudi Arabia in that sense. 
Um, whereas Armenia has been uh, largely left sort of bereft of a lot of that money. Um, and into the 90s was very much one of the few countries on the planet, I would say, that was uh, still staunchly pro-Russian, at least its government was. And the official uh, Armenian government policy uh, was that of, you know, Russian alliance um, and friendly relations with Iran, um, strangely enough. Uh, there's actually, uh, you know, Iran is very interesting in that um, there ha well, there's, there's a large... consider the Iranian-Turkish relations. Well, yes, but there's also... And the sine qua non of being an Armenian is to hate the Turk. Well, Which, yeah. you know, I can understand. Yeah, and... We I, can all I, understand. I, I think that uh, it, it is interesting, too, because in Iran, um, there is a very large Azeri population. Uh, Azeris make up nearly a quarter of the population of uh, Iran. And this has always been, a, like, a complex issue that the Iranians have had to deal with. Um trying to ingratiate Aziris into the framework of Iranian society, trying to make sure that they have a, both their internal regional um, sort of cultural values, but that they are also ex both expected to follow the rules, play a part, and given the opportunity to play a part and, and kind of be a part of the wider Iranian um, uh, sphere. Whereas uh, Armenians, there, there is a sizable amount uh, of Armenians in, um, in Iran, in Tehran, actually. And there are obviously quite a few Armenians, or there used to be quite a few Armenians in places like Syria and Lebanon, Egypt. Um, many of them were sort of uh, both a product of pre, you know, kind of last days of the Ottoman Empire when the Ottomans uh, turned their sights on uh, the Armenian population. Um, Armenians have been kind of spread out all over the, the world for actually a very long period of time. I don't think people realize how old uh, of an identity Armenian actually is. The Romans had many dalliances with uh, the Armenians for at one point. And um, I believe that R Armenian merchants have been recorded going as far as Indonesia at one stage or another. So they, they're certainly a an enterprising people. Um, and the Syrian civil war has been interesting in that the Armenian faction has largely been thrown out of Syria, as far as I can tell. Um, they've mostly lost a lot of their traditional holdings there. They no longer have much of a part to play in the post-civil war government. And I don't necessarily think that's a problem of, uh, of necessarily Assad. That's more that they, uh, they happen to be in regions that were severely under attack by um, you know, Sunni radicalists, I guess you could say. So now we've kind of come to, uh, obviously, 2020, and the war that everyone feared would inevitably come back has sort of been launched. Um, and again, it seems to have been, this time, a, uh, the, the aggression is coming from the Azerbaijan military. Um, it's not very clear what exactly the Azeris seek to gain. Uh, the common conception I've seen seems to be that due to Azerbaijan's large popula larger population and due to the fact that they are now very, or at least the government is extremely wealthy, 
due to sort of incoming energy money uh, and has made a lot of uh, amends with Israel, has made a, you know, a lot of relationships with Turkey, with the West. This has given them you know, what they feel is probably a kind of confidence that they can reclaim this, uh, this region um, and put pressure on Armenia. Um, and Armenia is in a tough spot because uh, in the last couple of years, Armenia has for some reason, some people have called it a color revolution, although it seems to have not totally worked or um, been a very kind of weird version of it. Or the Armenian government decided that they wanted to have closer relationships with the West, quote unquote. Um, this is a huge miscalculation on their part. Uh, number one, I don't think they realized how uh, embedded Turkey is with this, quote, West. And that to the Turks, uh, Armenia cannot be kind of brought into the fold until it's made uh, you know, to give back territory to Turkey's sort of vassal state, which is uh, Azerbaijan. And number two, I don't think that the Armenians quite realized that um, they don't really have a lot to offer in this situation. That ultimately, when you go into these arrangements, it's more about what you bring rather than this notion, you know, like on paper, it's uh, egalitarianism, brotherly love, that sort of nonsense. Um, but it's really about what you bring to the table. And what Turkey brings to the table is the second biggest army in NATO. What Azerbaijan brings to the table is an absolute insane amount of energy volume and proximity to other energy producing states like Turkmenistan, uh, and obviously uh, proximity to Russia. Armenia brings not much, uh, not necessarily blessed with natural resources, sort of in the way of, you know, various schemes. And certainly not a country, by the way, that has had a great uh, standing with Israel. In fact, um, as Hank mentioned, I believe uh, the Israelis have been supplying Azerbaijan with a variety of military hardware in this new confrontation. Uh, that is currently being used to kill Armenian soldiers and even attack uh, Armenian civilian villages. Uh, and I, this has actually led to Armenia recalling its ambassador from Tel Aviv. So it yeah. is interesting that, uh, that in Armenia, I think, made the Armenian government with these this new leadership that thought they could kind of turn to the West away from Russia and away from Iran – uh, has very quickly realized that uh, that's not really an option and that if they do so, they're going to be made to kind of give up a lot of the territory and possessions that they fought for 20 years ago. Now, it seems as though the Armenians have realized this was a terrible mistake and have tried to backtrack their sort of anti-Russian rhetoric the last year. Uh, Moon of Alabama is a great site for just kind of reading about a lot of these geopolitical, denser geopolitical topics. Uh, that guy's done an amazing amount of work on uh, the Syrian civil war, for example. Uh, and he's been reading, writing about it a lot recently, about this new conflict a lot recently. And what you kind of get from it is that uh, 
the the Russians seem to have little interest in helping Armenia outside of defending the territorial, traditional territorial boundaries of Armenia, meaning that the Russians aren't necessarily interested in helping the Armenians fight for Nagorno-Karabakh uh, and prevent the Turks from coming in, um, simply because they might be wanting to try and teach Armenia a lesson, or they just don't really see the point anymore if Armenia is now a pro-Western state. Um, and it's certainly interesting that numerous sort of analyses of various satellite movements seem to indicate that uh, a great deal of weaponry is coming in to Azerbaijan to support this war from Georgia, um, which is curious uh, because Georgia obviously is a state that has been sort of stripped away from the traditional Russian sphere and is now being used for um, sort of the new weapons rat line. Uh, this was a, a concept that was coined for various um, civil wars starting in the 90s and 2000s, all the way into the Syrian civil war and these sort of weapon trafficking uh, rat lines. And there's a new rat line that's moving into Azerbaijan through Georgia and other states uh, in order to kind of fund the war against Armenia. So really, I think that we're kind of watching uh, Armenia fighting against much of the world they might not know it, uh, but they're sort of on their own. They don't really have any real friends in this situation. Which yeah, is, I find that the geopolitics yeah. of this, like if you're going to find a more irrelevant, I guess, conflict from the perspective of any possible interest that America could have, I think you'd have to maybe delve into deepest Africa before you found some place that concerned us less. Right. What I find very interesting uh, is the uh, the sort of operational and tactical uh, levels of the conflict. So if you look at a uh, topographic map of uh, the kind of areas that are disputed and really just like the whole region, uh, it's kind of a nightmare to fight in because you've got these... Uh, like huge freaking mountains, a lot of very impassable terrain with a lot of very obvious routes in and out of places that are kind of these uh, broad, flat valleys. So what ends up happening is that if you try to actually get some guys to a place to do a thing on the ground, uh, you can see them as their opponent. You can see them coming for a long, long ways, and you have a lot of choice as far as when and from where uh, you decide to attack them. And we alluded to earlier uh, the use of these, uh, I forget the, the model designation, but uh, they're uh, not drones in the sense of uh, like the little helicopter dealios, these are closer to uh, kind of in spirit to the American uh, Raptor uh, drones. Like they kind of look like traditional fixed wing uh, the, airplanes. The predator drone? Of course, or the... Yes, pre predator. Yeah. Predator Raptor. Um, yeah, the Raptor is no... that toy too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Slip of tongue. Um, the... 
they tend to be employed by just having them kind of hover. They're they're great in anti-radar applications because you can stick a sensor suite in there um, and with very little human intervention, uh, they just wait for a radar station to pop on and then that creates a very distinctive signature that they can then just dive bomb with a very minimal actually explosive payload. It's mostly just the force of however many hundreds of pounds of aluminum and steel uh, driving into the ground at terminal velocity. Uh, but you can obviously also employ them to try to attack a tank column or a troop transport or a converted bus. Um, I think I saw in some of this footage. And that seems to have implications because it's difficult to uh, employ a lot of your more traditional uh, anti-aircraft stuff if these things are hovering, for instance, close to the ground, fairly far away. Uh, if they're out of reach of your uh, anti-aircraft stuff, they're probably actually cheaper than a lot of your um, effective anti-aircraft weaponry. And having to have that be deployed uh, in your entire theater of operations. It's, it's an interesting problem how that changes your calculations if you're going to fight in an environment um, that's not necessarily as, uh, as kind of constrained as that particular terrain. It makes me uh, wonder kind of how survivable um, the rear of the battlefield will get even uh, as you have more of these things kind of flying around, maybe on the ground uh, in areas uh, where they don't necessarily need a runway because they don't ever intend on landing. All you need is some way to get them into the sky and then they can fly around uh, looking for stuff to blow up. So um, the U.S. was the, the first to really make much use of drone warfare technology in the past. Uh, I guess it started around... I would say the war on terror, uh, 2001 or so. Uh, and then you've started to see these cropping up in other, uh, warfare arenas like the, well, the Middle East. I think, uh, Iran has used some recently. Saudi Arabia had to deal with a uh, strike from Yemen. And apparently now the, uh, the caucuses well, are, are seeing all, them. All the Saudi, all the Saudi stuff is American. Uh, they, have just been writing enormous checks for the most retarded loadouts, uh, anything to avoid having to have competent uh, soldiers, which of course kind of uh, is not a, a solvable problem. Uh, but that's one of the reasons why the U.S. has been so glad to assist them in a also strategically irrelevant and pretty near genocidal uh, campaign in Yemen is because it's it's being prosecuted with uh, U.S. equipment that is very expensive, has very high profit margins, has a lot of kind of ongoing maintenance because, of course, they can't maintain this shit. Yeah, there's been a, the there's, special arrangement. There's been a great deal of Raytheon hardware uh, discovered half exploded uh, in Yemen uh, multiple times at this point. So, you know, it's. I, I would say that uh, the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict is mostly irrelevant. Uh, Moon of Alabama and s some other people on that side of the, the spectrum, shall we say, uh, have the contention, of course, that this is part of a uh, larger anti-Russian effort on the part of the United States, which 
mean, uh, sure. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Around in there, but, but it's, like, it, it's it's also not necessarily clear what's to be gained because um, if Russia sees it that way, clearly they're not taking the bait. They seem relatively uninterested in what's going on. Uh, and again, it could it could just be because they see it as obvious bait, or they see it as uh, you know kind of uh, rightful discipline for the Armenians, uh, that they're, that they would kind of even toy with this notion of going to the West. I mean, this is what happens when you go to the West, you get brutalized and you get color revolution and you get sort of molded and crafted by people that might even be your eternal enemies, um, as sort of punishment and as sort of like an initiation ritual. It's a, it's a terrible idea to, to join the Western coalition or whatever that is at this stage. Georgia is a good indication of that. Uh, Syria is a good indication of that. And I think that uh, certainly Armenia would be wise to to kind of heed the advice of some of these people. Uh, again, Moon of Alabama wrote that uh, there is an odd connection that many of the current intelligence chiefs of the West, quote unquote, have with Turkey. And when you have a relationship with Turkey, it's not hard to assume that you have a relationship with Azerbaijan because, uh, as someone pointed out recently to me, um, you know, Azerbaijan is Turkey, effectively. Uh, it, it is basically a bastion of Turkey, and it very well could have been integrated into the country of Turkey had there not been an Azerbaijan in the way, I'm sorry, an Armenia in the way of, uh, of that relationship, a direct relationship. Um, the current director of the CIA, Gina Haspel, was doing field assignments in Turkey in the early stages of her career. She reportedly speaks Turkish. She has a history of serving as the station chief in Baku, Azerbaijan, in the late 1990s. It is therefore presumable that she still has connections with the local government and business elites. Current chief of MI6, Richard Moore, also has a history of working in Turkey. He was performing the tasks for the British intelligence there in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, Moore is fluent in Turkish, and he has also served as the British ambassador to Turkey from 2014 to 2017. The intelligence chiefs of the two most powerful countries in the Anglosphere are Turkologists with connections in Turkey and Azerbaijan. It would be reasonable to assume that a regional conflict happening now on their watch is far from being a mere coincidence. Uh, and I think that is a good observation, and coupled with the um, previously, I think, somewhat unrealized or unknown arms-dealing relationship that the Azerbaijanis had with uh, the Mossad certainly indicates that this could have been in the works uh, for a long time, or at least uh, has maybe always been an operation that could be executed on at kind of any given time. Um, and maybe this was sort of a handshake arrangement or a backroom arrangement with Azerbaijan for Western energy interests and uh, diplomatic interests, and in that, uh, you know, should the time come for another war over uh, Nagorno or Artsakh, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, you'll at least give us room to operate. You won't necessarily speak up. And you really haven't seen anything come out of the US government on this front. Now, I mean, granted, um, the U.S. government is a little busier with other things right now, um, but you really have seen a lot of silence on this issue in the United States, uh, and it could just yeah. be that it's it's being executed very silently to avoid 
giving the public any idea what's going on or um, that it, it's it's it was more of a um, an arrangement with Azerbaijan that the U.S. would stay out of it at the very least. Well, and you've seen the pro forma uh, calls for we have our all color and ceasefire and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as Nick just said, we, we're dealing with our own color revolution here. So don't really have time to uh, to go worry about another one, I guess. Well, it's also interesting on top of that, you know, I, I looked into kind of the CIA relationship with uh, with Turkey and it goes back a ways. Um, Turkey has been uh, kind of one of the the crown, not the crown jewels, but one of the vaunted crown jewels, let's say something that the CIA has always very much wanted um, and has never really been able to fully grasp. Um, and this is due nominally, I think, to the sort of Byzantine and complex uh, nature of Turkish politics, that it's nearly impossible to penetrate. It's nearly impossible to fully grasp who is who and who is playing who. Um, it's very likely one day someone can get whacked, and it doesn't even make the news in Turkey, let alone the world. Uh, assassinations are actually not totally uncommon. Uh, punitive firings and purgings and pr imprisonings are not uncommon in Turkey. Um, it's not uncommon for you to lose your accreditation for whatever your profession is, for you to lose your company. Um, and it doesn't necessarily even matter if you are kind of a supporter or member of the ruling party or at least the regional power brokers. Um, it, it's a very complex and somewhat arbitrary place. And uh, the spooks have been trying, I think, to operate there unsuccessfully for um, a lot of years. And this has resulted in several like very strange incidents. Uh, number one would be these sort of very strange um, uh, stay behind operation that uh, at one point the CIA tried to create in Turkey and that was uh, the gray wolves which is still kind of a thing like a <laughs> Turkish Turkish nationalist symbol I don't know why Turks celebrate that it is accepted open history that that was a spook operation um, but whatever there they seem to it has something to do with Turanic or old Turkic belief, this wolf symbolism. Well, it was made up of Turkish culture nationalists. Yeah. So it's not, I mean, you know, where you get funding and where you get your guns is not especially important if you're performing uh, your duty to the nation. This is kind of the attitude, generally speaking. Well, there was, uh, so in, um, in, uh, in 1957, the, there was a, kind of a brewing incident in that uh, the U.S. spooks walked into, uh, w along with the American ambassador to Turkey at the time, apparently interrupted a Turkish cabinet meeting in the middle of the day, just let themselves in, and uh, decided to tell the leader of Turkey and his cabinet ministers that uh, they were aware of their current foreign policy plans and they would like them to stop. And the prime minister of Turkey um, agreed 
Uh, his name was Adnan Manderes. Manderes. I don't know how you would pronounce that with the Turkish accent. Um, but he agreed. He said, okay, we won't do it. Uh, well, he was, uh, he was promptly cooed and executed three years later, primarily for this reason, by uh, several of his generals. Um, and so what was really going on was that Turkey had expansionist plans for Syria in the late 50s. And these plans went back as far as um, 1954 when uh, Adib uh, Shishakli, who was uh, sort of a, I don't know, a more Western-friendly um, president of Syria, was basically thrown out. And he was cooed by um, a bunch of Syrian Druze officers, uh, you know, a former president, members of the Syrian Communist Party, Arab nationalists, sort of a smattering of ideologies and factions in Syria got rid of this guy. And the Turks basically looked at Syria as a potential problem the way they do now back in the 50s and said, well, that used to be mostly Turkish territory. There are ethnic Turks that do live in various parts of Syria. Um, there is, you know, there's oil wealth to be had. There are good ports. Um, we should take it. Uh, and if you look at the world in 1957, the Soviet Union was not nearly prepared to deal with uh, some kind of intervention into uh, into Syria. And so the Turks thought that they would they had their shot, that no one else would really come to the aid of Syria. Uh, they could knock them out and yeah, everything would be fine. Well, the Americans got wind of this because the CIA had uh, a good a good kind of ingress into Turkey. And at the time, seemed to have a good grasp of what was really going on behind the scenes, and that uh, they they decided to step in and say, this is a bad idea, you shouldn't do it. Now, of course, this did not sit well with Turkish generals, which is something they did not anticipate, and it was a piece of this Byzantine Turkish politic that they didn't understand was the at the time was the relationship that generals have or used to have with the uh, the Turkish government. Um, until Erdogan, uh, there was a general belief amongst the Turkish military that every like couple decades or so, they need to effectively coup and kill whoever the current ruler of Turkey was. Um, uh, because gen generally every couple decades you get a bad apple and you need to get rid of him. And this was sort of a leftover legacy of Ataturk, uh, and the Kamalists, who have actually been mostly marginalized in Turkish politics. You know, the, the, the sort of ideological founders of the modern Turkish Republic have mostly been relegated to like a third-rate um, political party. They don't really have much power anymore. Um, you can find like really great um, demographic maps of different regions of Turkey, and then you can correlate that with, you know, regions of Turkey and how they vote. And the regions that vote the most for the Kamalists are generally uh, more affluent, and they also have like negative demographic rates. They're basically in total decline. Um, and so in you know, 20, 30 years, they will have basically no power, um, and Turkey will inevitably become more of a one-party, one-ideology state. Um, at the time, in 1957, this was not the case, but the generals 
still had this framework model from Ataturk that they do have some kind of expected duty to occasionally uh, capture and kill the current leader of Turkey and uh, go through some kind of trial by fire process and get a new guy in there. Uh, so the current ruler of Turkey has been the first in a very long time to um, actually avoid this fate and actively fight against it. Uh, maybe for better or for worse, I don't think anyone really understands enough of Turkish politics to say. Um, but, and it's not really clear where his loyalties lie. Um, but certainly this was the case into the 50s, and the CIA didn't understand this is how the game worked, that um, this was just sort of a natural cycle. And one day you might have a lot of connections into Turkey, and you might have a good rapport with even the Turkish president or the prime minister, um, and the next day he could be dead, and you have no connections and you have no plan. And this um, so is the thesis that the after the Second World War, the United States basically inherited whatever the state was of the British intelligence networks and a lot of that part of the world, and sort of, uh, you know, via their lack of competency uh, and the sort of non-recognition of a lot of these historical dynamics uh, ended up fittering it away over the last, over the subsequent 50 years. Yeah. Um, and so basically this all sort of plays out with the CIA losing, again, most of its connection. They lose a lot of their avenues into Turkish politics and until the 80s, uh, the CIA has a very difficult time. And the American general, while it's nominally an ally of Turkey and nominally Turks are part of NATO, um, well into the 80s, which is kind of when Gina Haspel and some of these other characters who I just mentioned come onto the scene, uh, Turkey was the sort of alien to um, the American sphere. It was sort of on the outskirts of the empire, you might say, one of the borderlands. Um, one of those places where the, they, they have more autonomy over themselves, certainly not something like West Germany. And uh, the 90s is really when the Turks' economy takes off. Um, certainly the Turkish lira becomes far more valuable. Uh, they start receiving a lot of uh, pieces of manufacturing industry from Western Europe. They start sort of taking over production that used to be done in Eastern Europe or other parts of the world. Um, and Turkey today has, you know, benefited, benefited greatly from that. And so has Azerbaijan by just sort of by proxy. Um, and so I do think that the theory that, uh, you know, that the United States is probably more so leaning towards Azerbaijan is correct. And I would say it's correct because the United States has a vested interest, or at least the spooks have a vested interest, in maintaining relationships with whoever is currently running Turkey. Because it is such a wild place and the politics are always so strange and difficult to navigate. Um, just the linguistic barrier alone and the cultural barrier alone is difficult to navigate. That you don't necessarily want to sour any of your connections, even in the slightest. And so doing anything that would be perceived as being too uh, adversely anti-Turkish um, 
would probably not play well. Uh, you kind of saw this when the Turks basically sold American technology that we had given them to the Chinese. The reaction to that was effectively nothing, at least on the public scene. Uh, there was no reaction to it. And I suspect it's because uh, in some ways, America is actually sort of hostage to Turkey now. Um, there's the, the obvious question of what's going on with the uh, base at Incirlik, which is where America houses dozens of uh, nuclear-capable ICBMs. The status of which no one is still clear on. <laughs> well, they're not. They're not ICBMs. It's actually worse. They're uh, they're they're tactical nukes uh, oh, sort that are designed to be loaded on and off of uh, planes very easily. Well, wasn't what that I a point heard... of contention during the Cuban Missile Crisis? That was the yes, ostensible was the, Soviet the Jupiter, complaint. That was that the was Jupiter particular the, the Jupiter ice or intermediate range effectively um but uh actual ballistic missiles as opposed to the uh the tactical nukes that we supposedly have this is another one of those whole uh neither confirm nor deny exactly where we deploy our nukes uh but that's sort of the tacit understanding and one would have thought that it would have been kind of a more uh, significant scandal um, had we offloaded those not scandal but it's one of those face-saving things. It's a real uh, feather in your cap um, that you're on Team America if we uh, trust you enough to have our nukes basically hostage there. Because the whole point of the nuclear sharing thing was you don't need your own nuclear program, uh, Germany or Italy or Belgium or Turkey or wherever. Uh, instead, we're going to pre-stage some of our nukes there, and they're going to be under dual control, and they're they're only going to go with both of our sign-off if we should ever have to really go at it with the Ruskies. With the understanding being, okay, well, there's this much plutonium in them, and there's like two guys there from the U.S. Air Force with their little dinky 1911s waiting uh, to be clubbed over the head, you grab the stuff in the worst case, and then if you really need to nuke Russia because they're uh, invading your country and the Americans are uh, refusing to give you adequate aid, then you can just take the nukes and do it yourself. Uh, yeah. So with that as the explicit, like they're literally designed to be stolen. Not like, uh, you know, here's the, the secret key thing. There's kind of a pro forma security uh, effort. But that's the strategic intention, and the, the U.S. strategic uh, community was pretty explicit about that. Uh, it's a really bad idea to have them in Turkey. Uh, it's probably at this point a really bad idea to have them anywhere in Europe, just because it's not like you're going to have to deal with 50,000 tanks pouring over the Fulda Gap or whatever the fuck. Like You have time to fly the shit over from Omaha if you really need to. Yeah, I think that the, the notion of tactical nuclear warheads being positioned all around Europe is sort of, I mean, it's it's this dated idea, just as NATO is a dated idea. It's basically, it's built on this fundamental understanding of the 
they will never say it's Russia. Like they they do this weird linguistic game where they actually refuse to say what the aim of they'll this say, all is. They'll say like nuclear weapons are an important part of our NATO security arrangements with yeah, NATO security partners. It's yeah, and and like the reality that they will never admit, and it's for very cynical and greedy reasons. But uh, the Russians have absolutely zero interest in some kind of red army style pour over in europe i mean in this day and age the russians would be lucky to just field an army <laughs> like it is it's it is not the same country it is it is absolutely not the same country well, and even even if yeah. they did have like a hundred divisions uh just hiding out in siberia like stalin had uh it's seizing a territory is no longer a good way to extract resources from that territory. Yeah. It's one thing if, you know, it's Crimea, it's this tiny chunk of land, there's a humongous naval base there, there's a friendly local population, there is no historical, uh, reason why it should be attached to this other state like stalin literally just signed an order to make an administrative division of the ussr like that makes a certain amount of sense if it's like okay we're gonna take over poland like what does that get you does does that give you you know their their vast natural resources like you have siberia like, do, you, yeah. do you get to enslave all the brilliant Polish mathematicians and scientists and make them work on your super weapons? Like, I I can never understand what the rationale was. I mean, in the Cold War, it made a certain, like, you could construct a scenario where, uh, you know, the existence per se of Western Europe becomes uh, excessively uh, threatening or like the American pressure uh, to weaponize the resources of Western Europe makes it more worthwhile to effectively destroy those resources than to allow them to be used against uh, the USSR. But in contemporary terms, that's it. None of this makes sense, and it's not does not seem to be how. Uh, you know the Russian armed forces are oriented either. The United what States. What specifically were, do you think changed tank? Uh, between the end of the Cold War. Yeah, well, that makes these forms of warfare or acquisition of resources uh, uh, obsolete. What What are the specific things that changed, in your opinion? Yeah, I think like war is always extremely destructive, and in in the Cold War, I think that the calculation would have been that uh, the United States is a hegemonic state. They fully intend on using Western Europe as a platform to destabilize and ultimately subvert and control, destroy uh, the Eastern Bloc. Therefore, we have to eliminate that launch pad, which ironically is exactly what has ended up happening post-Cold War. Uh, not quite as dramatically as, uh, you know, some able archer uh, type first strike situation, but that has been the United States uh, approach since like 2000 or so. So, or 
you know, substantially before, even when NATO expansion started in the late 90s. Uh, I mean, with global capital markets, the Russians have, you know, engaged in quite a bit of resource and commodity market manipulation and, you know, almost monopoly and sometimes monopsony ownership rules where, I mean, the Russians effectively control the global uranium market. They have a massive amount of power in their both ownership and operation of various natural gas lines into all of Western Europe. I mean, there are far, there have been far easier ways the Russians have expanded their power into Europe rather than yeah. using. And these are these are effective ways to yes. increase yes. your national power, like using using a kind of armed suasion on top of uh, economic interests is a very uh, kind of 1800s way to go about stuff, but it is a way that you can end up with a, a resource-based uh, trade empire that doesn't let you actually dominate uh, your neighbors, really, because you, you need customers. Like, you actually need somebody to buy the shit from you and not decide that it's more worthwhile to do something else uh, over the long term. And I would but, say even like the Russian tech companies, JetBrains, Nginx, Kaspersky have gotten far more penetration around the world, even in former enemy and rival states, than they would have ever gotten with their old methods. I mean, just it's yeah. a completely I mean, I different planet. I don't begrudge yeah. like the existence of Nginx or whatever. Like, oh no, no, no! Is... I'm not saying I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying that they, to your point, that there are far easier ways to gain control and influence without territorial acquisition. Or not I mean, even, not even like you know, dumb. sinister influence, but just to develop the economy of your right. country. Yeah, yeah. Like there, there was a very large Russian industrial base and in other parts of Russia too, for that matter, that still. Uh, exists and needed to be retooled. They needed access to capital in order to retool. A lot of that stuff is not cheap and is frankly still ongoing. Yeah. Well, there was a, there was so another the, interesting. So we bit we've now this. come out as the the neoliberal podcast of the <laughs> distant right. <laughs> global access I, I, to global I, I capital and, and labor uh, flows is the the key to national uh, prosperity. Well, not necessarily labor flows, but. I mean, I'm not, and I'm not in favor of this stuff, but I think it is a worthwhile point that, you know, in the United States, it's the same thing. We criticize it. The United States, like, you know, through financialization, for example, has found various ways of extracting control that it has would never have needed to gain through like shedding blood and treasure. I mean, you know, it's. The, the U.S. Yeah. colluded, the U.S. colluded, uh, if you ever read like Richard Werner's books, Princes of the Yen, um, and other books, you, you'll get the sense the U.S. used a financial trick colluding with certain elements in Japan to absolutely decimate Japan's economy into the early 90s in a way that... Talking know, about the Plaza Accords in 85? Well, some of that, but some of it was just the, the blow up of the Bank of Japan and sort of the, the takeover of Bank of Japan and their, their role in, in the Japanese banking system and, and sort of the expansion of credit and all that stuff. But the point was that it was part of the U.S. effort to do so because it was a way of decimating the Japanese trade trade economy that was blowing up. And 
effectively bring Japan back into the heel the way that they had been in 45. It, you know, I'd are, like to he are, hear more details on how that was executed because uh, China, I think, is well aware of, of that and they have resisted it. No, I'd, I'd, I'd be very interested in that, actually, um, because Japan the, was, the chief, the, the, at, the, at the time, was considered a, a rival akin to China, uh, if not more so in many ways, because the United States had not experienced anything like that after the war. And since uh, Japan's uh, rise and uh, just sort of, you know, people getting like out of the manufacturing sector in general, I think Americans are less bothered by the fact that China is now five times the size of Japan and what it ever was. Uh, but at the time, it was an incredible shock. And um, I, I just note that China has attempted to avoid being Japaned. Well, yeah. And I think that they... they saw very clearly uh what happened with japan so my point though largely is that uh, again just backing up hank there are plenty of ways in which power of all kinds has been exercised post-world war ii certainly even post-cold war that have had nothing to do with military troops and so we go back to this like bullshit nato excuse for existence which is that apparently there there is some like ongoing secret plot to launch like 400,000 Gopniks deep into uh, <laughs> France. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's totally asinine that this is still, I guess, the strategy. Um, yeah. So further it's into this. A, it, yeah. I mean, this, the whole armed suasion backed by underlying economic force, like it goes both ways. That's, explicitly yeah. what the united states is trying to do like so much of this is projection when we right. talk about oh god the the russians could control this uh this flow of energy and uh the uh <clears throat> uh help, help me out here what's the uh what's the pipeline that we keep like ominously threatening it to, to nuke people over the Nord, uh, Stream. Yeah, Nord Stream, the, the, the Nord Stream, Nord Stream. Oh, well, that's already been yeah. built. I thought. Well, it's it's complicated. Like Nord Stream three or something. Hmm. Nord Stream. They were talking uh, like two. Gerhard Schroeder was two. talking about that back when he was still uh, Chancellor of Germany, and that was uh, yeah. There God, was there was Nord Stream and there's Nord Stream two. Uh, <laughs> you have to forgive me. Uh, for uh, my my misstating of proper nouns tonight, I am uh, a little bit. It's such a dumb name. Why couldn't they choose something like uh, you know I don't know Vladimir Putin's uh, big the, hot oil stream or something like that. Uh, the Yankee enough. Dowser. <laughs> <laughs> Do the Russians call us Yankee? I don't think they call us Yankee. The, the I, I hope so. Yeah, this is a southern thing but i mean so the united states w is explicitly threatening uh, essentially economic sanctions on its putative allies on which it has vast numbers of troops stationed uh and the ability evidently to perform significant destabilizing efforts uh, if they should secure access to alternative uh, energy routes that uh, allow them to get access to cheaper energy than what the United States would prefer to export. 
Like it's completely transparent exactly what the strategic imperative is there. Uh, they would rather that Europe buy energy from the United States as opposed to somebody else. And they use the threat of cutting off their existing economic arrangements and whatever skullduggery uh, they can plausibly, deniably get away with, uh, given their existing physical, uh, quote-unquote, security assets that are stationed in these countries. So, I mean, it's it's exactly symmetrical. Like, I don't like to do the whole, like, well, both sides, if you really squint at it, but this is just a a mode of operation that seems to be kind of the dominant uh paradigm that uh, large states relate to small states in the 21st century. It's no longer about seizing the Sudeten land so that you get access to the coal reserves. It's, well, how can you force them to buy your shit instead of somebody else's shit? Yeah, I think you're you're right overall. I've, I've wondered about this as well, how modern warfare is waged. A lot of it is, I think, in the um, after- the use of nuclear weapons during the Cold War and after that, I think people did realize that going to war is very expensive unless your enemy is completely unprepared for you. Uh, and acquiring resources um, is often better just you know done by using money, uh, just purchasing it or printing it in the case of uh, the uh, Federal Reserve. But there has to be something to be said for the fact that we're really talking about major countries uh, going at it, and they do have large territories to begin with. There, there has to be some value there. Uh, oh, yeah. the, the fact that the and frontier has closed makes the cost to acquiring more territories certainly much higher. But uh, the fact that Russia has the largest landmass under its belt in the world is due to a lot of uh, a lot of warfare in the past that has then paid them forward uh, to the, the current uh, moment where they have access to those resources. So there is some value. But yes, the dynamic has changed. It's sort of hard to understand going forward what that means. Who needs but... to control territory when you control the fucking politicians that... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's where, that's where you really have power, where you can actually just control everybody else through... Uh, covert means and you don't actually even have anybody aware of it in the general public which i think is how most things are done today yeah right after you take that neoliberal pill you take that jew pill and you realize that it's better typically not even to have a state behind this at all but uh you know shady uh, transnational entities well i think they were the books. first to do it but i think there's plenty of other elites that have come to that same conclusion yeah, people are warming up. They're warming up to the new way. The new way of making life shittier. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting the way that this pattern repeats recursively inside of the United States itself. This is the exact relationship that uh, places like California have between the the urban polity and the essentially colonized uh, flyover red areas of their uh, of their state and you know even on a level below that this is the relationship that a lot of places like New York City have with their uh, their kind of 
I mean, it's all blue, but their their core has with their periphery where the important part of keeping somebody inside the tent uh, is to ensure that these relationships keep on where you can secure access to those resources in a way that has minimal violence well, the and old ways, disruption. Speaking of minimal violence, uh, the old ways do have their value. I assume they're minimal applied, destructive violence. Uh, you can have tons of like enough. latent violence. You can have tons of day-to-day -day violence. You can clean out entire neighborhoods. You can ensure that there's a level of poverty that well, makes violence Well, you can rename inevitable. violence. You can rename, you can start referring to violence as isolated incidents. Right. And then, you know, when that it's isolated incident continues to happen over and over again, it becomes a series of isolated incidents with no relation to each other. Right. The point is that, you know, there's kind of this, there's kind of this dream of like a peace dividend, but it seems like, you know, I, I've made the, the claim before that the end of the Cold War was ultimately very destructive to the American polity because it, it made it clear that there was not going to be a need uh, for the United States to sort of operate at full capacity. Uh, the United States could not have gotten away with the amount of like vast liquidation of human capital result from our current education system by like for instance uh if it was still like okay well your job is to compete against you know every 140 iq russian uh that their central government can scrape up that was the explicit pitch for the united states uh federal government becoming involved in education at all it was literally we got to find all the the bright, uh, the bright white boys from flyover country, and we've got to turn them into rocket scientists so that we can launch nukes and send uh, send astronauts into space to build orbital weapon platforms. So instead of that peace dividend where all of those resources are now available for a private sector, uh, it seems to be the case that instead it was more profitable to liquidate a lot of those resources in order to ensure a greater level of control and stability, uh, stasis even, uh, on the part of the central government. So, I mean, I don't know how this hashes out uh, in the face of a more adversarial relationship uh, with places like China. Uh, or if that uh, is just kind of all a kabuki dance that nobody expects to actually go anywhere. Like, I don't know how it can go anywhere, frankly, if you have a substantial portion of your own uh, theoretically indigenous uh, elite with passports and everything being beholden uh, to that rival power. Yeah, it... It, it it looks it looks pretty I bad. I think there's from a... probably a fundamental lack of unseriousness amongst the elite as far as that goes, considering that they deliberately sabotage their own human capital pool to draw from over the past you know couple decades. Uh, why would they do that if uh, this wasn't a bluff to begin with? I don't know. I don't think they're too worried about any foreign power at this point. I think that they'll. 
<clears throat> primary thing that the American or, you know, uh, Jewish uh, American uh, Punjab <laughs> elite is worried about is the domestic American population. That's probably where they're allocating their most prime resources at this point. Well, on another cheerier note, uh, one of our favorite pastimes on this show is to uh, document the decline of one of America's former great organizations, uh, companies, enterprises, uh, General Electric. Uh, well, we did a whole show on, the rise, and, on the rise and fall of uh, General Electric uh, today. News in the Wall Street Journal, uh, GE says it has received a Wells notice from SEC relating to accounting investigation. Uh, That's short staff. for so Wells looks like you're fucked. Yeah. SEC staff recommended civil action against the company for violating securities laws. Um, this is a fascinating article for what it talks about, not necessarily even related to security law violations uh, effectively uh, that the industrial giant said in a securities filing Tuesday that it received a so-called Wells notice on September 30th over the company's accounting for reserves related to an insurance business it has been trying to wind down for years. Uh, Adam and I discussed this at length, this GE capital business, which includes the much of these uh, insurance ventures that um, GE had kind of wrapped up for a variety of different businesses. It wasn't even solely even for industrial products. Was this the work that the guy Markopoulos did when he was looking yeah, at the well, healthcare liabilities? This is, this is sort of related to it, yeah. I mean, GE, uh, basically, I can't remember if we talked about this, but GE came out and said after Markopoulos put his report out, uh, for those who don't remember this, the guy who caught Bernie Madoff and a few other crooks. Um, uh, this They came out and said that they totally disagreed with what he wrote, that it was just totally factually inaccurate, um, that there was a, there was no basis to it, and blah, 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 blah. It was like it was like a letter from the Church of Scientology. It was just it was kind of hilarious to read. Um, and then they didn't really bother disproving much of it. Um, and certainly over the last year and a half, uh, GE has basically eroded into complete irrelevancy. Um, it's effectively like barely even a blue chip stock anymore. I don't even know why you'd buy it. Uh, it's not on. <laughs> Not in any of the major indexes. It's uh, no, no one really cares about it much anymore, other than it happens to have a huge amount of liabilities, billions of dollars that uh, someone has to pay for at some point. Um, so the company uh, discharge or disclosed large write downs tied to the insurance business and its power business. Uh, so they're trying to cooperate with the SEC, um, and these accounting problems kind of arose in 2017, and when Jeff Immelt, this cult of Immelt, came to an end, uh, everyone realized, like, oh, this company sucks. Cash flow is going down, profits are way down, doing share buybacks, all things a mess. And nothing had fundamentally changed. All the promises to really, like, wind down GE Capital weren't totally accurate. 
uh, needed to bolster its insurance reserves by $15 billion and booked a $6 billion charge. And it was apparently also being looked into for a criminal probe by the DOJ that's, I guess, still ongoing or might, might have been closed. But uh, uh, so they tried to get rid of a lot of their insurance holdings. Uh, now, here's what's interesting. GE kept the risk for a block of long-term care insurance policies written by GE Capital until 2006. Such policies pay for nursing homes and assisted living facilities. They have proved to be an expensive problem for the insurance industry, which underestimated how much the policies would need to pay out. Uh, so we get to a wider and more complex issue at heart that certainly ties into, I guess, the primary issue of the day these days, which would be the coronavirus, uh, the boomer and tumor, as some people have lovingly called it. Suddenly, I think that there's a realization that uh, keeping a lot of very old people alive forever and promising them all kinds of money uh, was kind of a financial risk, wouldn't you guys say? Yeah, we'll be fine. We'll, well, just, I, we'll just I, find the money. What? what uh, so we, we talked about the steel industry a few I, episodes I ago. I personally and... am of the opinion that there's far more efficient ways to exterminate the elderly. We, we we can maybe talk about that later, but I, I just wanted to <laughs> trust that. Maybe, maybe By the way, there. speaking of elderly um, people, before I forget, uh, our, our good friend John McAfee was recently arrested in the country of Spain. Did you guys hear about this? No, what happened? Uh, yeah. Who, hey, did he, whom did, did he you, piss off you, this time? Let's play Guess the Charges. Well, he was, uh, he was charged on behalf of the United States for tax evasion. How old was she? John McAfee? Uh, he's in his 60s. You flip a coin between sexual perversion, <laughs> and drug, drug charges, and uh, tax evasion. You really uh, you get your pick of the litter there. In terrorism. Well, they also indicted him for uh, financially benefiting for like, or from, uh, from, I don't know, some like cryptocurrency IPO or whatever. Who gives a shit? Why doesn't he just burn his passport? I mean, at this point, you know, what 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 does he need to? Well, they make it they make it he, difficult for you to do that because you... I, I don't think that he should be punished by. Yeah, you in order to renounce your U.S. citizenship, you have to uh, basically prove to the U.S. government's satisfaction that you uh, have paid all of your taxes uh, for the past n years. I recall that when one of the Facebook and it's my understanding that they don't they don't cool. count uh, demonstrating a commitment to not paying any of your previous and future taxes as satisfactory, right? Well, I remember that when one of the uh, one of the Facebook founders, I think it was Saverin, when he got screwed out, um, Eduardo, decided, yeah, yeah, decided that he wanted to leave the United States, went to Brazil, I think. To, or Singapore. Yeah, he was just like a, like a dual citizen or something. Well, he was he renounced his American citizenship or something like that. Yeah. And I remember it like made national political news. And I distinctly remember Chuck Schumer of all people like complaining about it like this oh, is so Of course. Oh god, this Where's is Where's so my wrong. money? Yeah. You can't you can't <laughs> just skip out on yeah. the bill like that. your tax cut has gone out to pasture. Yeah, so you know, there is this 
and I can't remember if he had introduced some kind of legislation, like basically an exit fee. <laughs> if you're going to leave America, you have to like pay the toll. Oh, God, this is like so paralleling the Soviet Union where they had exit oh, visas. Oh, I remember that. I remember exactly what you're talking about. Yes, yeah. and I can't remember if he actually got it passed. I, I don't yeah, know. And, I don't plan on leaving and America. Implicit acknowledgement that your passport is worth less. <laughs> Right. And it's a I mean, perfect trade because there's, yeah. you know, there's clearly Chinese and Indian citizens that are willing to pay the very minuscule uh, amount of money that we require for an E-series visa. It seems like we could just kind of trade. Yeah, seems like we could. So anyways, uh, I forgot. I wanted to mention that uh, we, we wish take American uh, American techies and oligarchs and we can take uh their shit tier peasants it's a yeah. perfect trade the american people win every time this kind of trade takes place yeah so anyways i wanted to uh to you know mention that about mr mcafee we hope you're doing well sir we uh we we, we uh we hope you you escape successfully go back on the run Maybe it so, wasn't uh, him. Yeah, maybe no, yeah, maybe I, he had a body double. Well, I hope. She, oh sure yes, there enough. is there is a rumor that there are many John McAfees. That there are several, and he's been seen in many places at once. We are so. all John McAfee now. Yeah, maybe it wasn't the the John McAfee. It was one of his his uh, underlings or something. So, anyways, if it was him, if it wasn't one of his various body doubles, we uh, we wish him well. We hope he can. Uh, uh, <laughs> successfully evade the law yet again. Uh, didn't he tell us that he paid fifty million dollars in taxes already? I mean, sounds about right. Uh, yeah, like <laughs> how much more can you? Re- how much more blood well, do you really need to draw? San Francisco has got to pay Black and Pacific Islander women to have children, and that money oh, doesn't come yes. from nowhere. This is this is not the kind of uh, pro fertility politics wait, I, you I have was to pay hoping them? for. I thought they just like popped out of the fucking dirt. Uh, San Francisco is now uh, explicitly targeted, uh, and ironically, coming from a mayor called London Breed. She is now breeding uh, <laughs> African American and Pacific Islander women <laughs> to have children. Thousand dollars per is head. It's a pilot program run <laughs> via a public private partnership to see if they can Look, increase if you drive health from the outcomes state of for the disadvantaged community. They ask you specifically if you have any fruits or vegetables that are alien to the region. You know what I mean? I mean, that's a, that's a, you, you can't just go even between state lines in America, you can't just take tomatoes or tomatoes well, california is the know, only state or that whatever. attempts that well you said that they're only there so they're only targeting blacks and pacific islanders or who are they targeting? Yeah, i don't know how they slipped in the pacific islander one but, so so they're yeah. not targeting hispanics which confirms no. you know based uh hispanic reich i guess at this point in california yeah. Yeah, go look I mean, it up. Years ago, I'm not making Democrats this up. Like, so they Please. find it's not it's not literally a baby bonus. It's you know however many hundred dollars for the uh, like six months preceding the birth and three months after something like that. Um, 
the the putative is there a target uh, quantity for subliterate retards to achieve is that a is there a explicit you know number of of how many dysfunctional hominids we need is this well didn't didn't sfs the more the merrier lower their medical standards for i'm sorry their standards for medical school admission or their test scores i believe yeah everybody has on account of the uh Roni, uh, but I mean, I, I think that you know clearly that this this speaks to, uh, I mean, it kind of even ties into what we were talking about before our, our McAfee tangent. Uh, you know, this this multi-billion-dollar, I guess, trillion-dollar in the wider scheme, uh, you know, pension and long-term insurance problem, and that. Uh, there is a real belief that if we just sort of quantitatively ease our way out of this with a population boom, like everything's going to be okay. We just need to get more people into the business. I mean, I, I, I do regard a lot of these medical school standards being eased and nursing school standards being eased and even like dental hygienist standards being eased simply to deal with the vast quantities of elderly who are going to need long-term care in the next i think it's more about revenue really Uh, yeah i mean a lot of i'm not sure what the situation is in medical schools specifically but every uh every uh, undergraduate institution and a lot of graduate ones too actually it's like you're uh your educational experience, quote unquote, has gone to shit. Uh, so people are significantly less willing to go. So if uh, if you'd like to go to, fuck, I don't know, UCLA or whatever, uh, and pay full freight in exchange for uh, a glorified YouTube channel, then, you know, <laughs> I guess they're happy to cash those checks. It's not like they can tarnish the brand much more. So is that confirmed that they're doing medical schools uh, over Zoom for the most part? I don't know how that works. And I I would assume that it varies based on area because I know some some institutions are doing in-person classes. Some are doing hybrid. Some of them are basically prison rules where you're uh, you're locked in your dorm uh, three hours a day. You're literally not allowed to leave campus. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, If you find yourself, and if we have any college-age listeners and you're contemplating whether to take a a quote-unquote gap year, go go ahead and take the gap year. And if you find yourself trapped inside one of these institutions, remember that every prison needs a prison gang. Yeah, uh, I have have heard about this. Um, And... There was, what happens there was, when you're trapped inside the belly of the machine and the machine is dying? Yeah, I mean, that, there have been several interviews with students, um, Wall Street Journal, a couple other papers that I, I do read occasionally. And generally the sense I get uh, is you're right, that they're basically trapped in their dorms and they're monitored. Um, and there have even been attempts to place apps on kids' phones um, you know, there's been talk of using facial recognition technology at cameras on the school perimeter. Um, very practicing tightly, evading these things will yeah, uh, yeah, tightly, very, tight very useful practice over the next, oh, say, year or so. Yeah, I mean, tightly monitoring all movements. 
uh, and it's it's very peculiar. All the uh, the obligatory suicide net. No, they haven't yet. They haven't done the Foxconn facility suicide net. Although I assume prefer to just tack weld the doors and windows. I mean, I I assume that um, honestly, if this goes on for another year, they probably are going to have to. Uh, And I think you're right about the the gap year thing. You know, I had a uh, I know someone who was I was talking to someone recently about this, and uh, this person had uh, talked to another person who has. A kid who's going off to college, like 17, going off to college soon. And uh, they had talked about it as a family, I guess. And they had agreed uh, that this kid was going to take a gap year, you know, work, uh, focus on some hobbies, maybe, you know, actually try and learn some of this stuff outside of the classroom ahead of time. And, um, you know, as long as the kid kept busy and, and didn't just lie around all day and watch TV or I guess these days watch YouTube or Netflix or whatever, um, you know, that they were fine with it. And I think uh, you're, you're going to see kind of a shift in pattern around this because, again, like I said, the, all, a lot of the interviews with students who have decided to go back have all of them, I mean, all of them across the board have, uh, have talked about immediately regretting it. Um, there are several class action lawsuits against middle, uh, I'm sorry, uh, universities right now. And the basis of most lawsuits is that the quality of the education is simply not what they paid for and that they paid for, uh, you know, the cost of their tuition was based on a enumerity of expenses that no longer make sense, such as facilities utilization. If they're no longer allowed to use the facilities, why is the tuition the same or even going up? Oh, because the, the college uh, expenses... Uh, are almost identical like all of their they don't pay taxes so all of their expenses are basically keeping the lights on the heat on the internet on all of which they basically still have to do uh and salaries and that's you know those people still need to get paid uh if anything more so now that they've determined that they're going to make it up on volume and uh hire a bunch more adjuncts so you know i guess tonight we've talked a lot about uh caucasian wars and uh, depressed students and uh you know a potential long-term insurance problem for a former industrial giant uh you know, I guess our advice is stay safe, stay frosty, and uh, try and keep your head up. Next week, we do promise to have actual historical content. But until then, uh, please keep yourself out of harm's way and uh, try not to evade your taxes. I actually have something to say. <laughs> oh. We spoke too soon. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to briefly discuss something that I've seen. Uh, it won't take long at all. I, I've seen that there's a lot of confusion about the martini. Uh, many people <laughs> don't seem to understand how it is you make a martini correctly. And I wanted to discuss briefly, but we won't have the time to do it, uh, the Great American Creations. And the martini, in my estimation, ranks up uh, probably at the top, right next to the browning. And, 
Anton would agree with me. I think that he said something to the effect that the martini was the only American creation as perfect as the sonnet. So I just want to leave you people with uh, some advice on making the martini. The martini should not be shaken. It should be stirred. It should be gin. It should not be vodka. I would say uh, around three ounces. You can do two and a half ounces, but three ounces of vodka. You want it dry, so under an ounce of dry vermouth. Uh, less vermouth, the drier. Uh, probably dirty as well, so put olive brine in that. And make sure that you always pour the martini into a chilled glass. It's very simple. It's not a difficult drink to make, but it is the best drink, and it is something that as an American you can be proud that this was a uniquely American creation. And I hope uh, you all have a good night. Cheers. I'm not.